when you have to say something, say in any language, and when you don't have to say anything, say it in English. When I have, when we have, uh, you know, Rishi, like Dr. Gupt here, I don't have much to say, so that's why I'm speaking in English. And I just want to welcome you all here. Um, like I said, you know, it's all lines up. Who wants to be here, who wants to learn and everything. And we are here for a reason, we are here for a purpose. And I will let uh, uh, Dr. Gupt take it from here. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you very much, Aftansaji. So, uh, it is indeed an honor and a great fulfillment to be here with you. Uh, actually, uh, this trip was done a little hurriedly and the planning uh, was also done very quickly. But so far it has been very successful in the sense that some very crucial issues and crucial texts have been discussed. I started with uh, Houston, had two workshops there and then one informal workshop. Then I went to San Jose, then to Dallas, and after that to Washington, D.C., and finally here. The main purpose of this discussion, workshop, gave it whatever name, is really to deal with a crucial problem. And what is the crucial problem? We have some fundamental texts of our civilization. And these texts for the last 150 years have almost become either a matter of castigation or a matter of ridicule. So we have lost actually our trust in these texts. Now you know, a civilization, at least to my mind, is defined by a line of texts that the civilization preserves. Or a series of texts by which that civilization lives and revives itself. For instance, there is no Christianity without the Bible. You know, the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. And the language is also very important. Hebrew in the Old and Greek. 2,000 year old Greek in the new. And there is certainly no Islam without quran e majid without Quran. There is no focal point. The whole civilization depends upon it. The whole ideology depends upon it. Similarly for India. 
Now, in case of India, we are richer because we don't have one whip. We have a whole line of texts, <coughs> beginning with Rig Veda, Samveda, and the other two Vedas. And then we have a whole line of texts given to us by the modern rishis, by the modern sages like Shri Aurobindo. We have a whole tradition. And yet, the Hindu civilization is subject to all kinds of confusions. We very often hear that, what are we going to decide upon? Which is the cardinal text of Hinduism? If you have to prescribe one single text or tell somebody that where to go for the fundamental Hindu beliefs, then which should be the text? Now, this was not the question before 19th century. In nobody's mind, this was the question. Because people said, here are our texts which are known by very different kinds of names. Not a single name like a scripture. You know, the word used in English very often for the Christian fundamental text is the scripture. What is your scripture? The Bible. What is your scripture? The Quran. Right? Mm -hmm. We don't use a single word. We have the Vedas, then the then then we have the Brahmanas, the Aranyakas, the Upanishads, and then as you come down then we have text of what has been called not the Astic but the Nastic tradition but which is still part of our study constantly. And then we have a whole line of Shastras, then we have Kavyas and all kinds of Natya. We have a whole category of texts and whole reality of education called the Natya. You see, the, the, the variety is immense. What I'm trying to drive at is that one should see the line as it is and not in terms of the questions that are put to us by the Christians or the Jews or the modern Indologists. See, because that's not the way to look at it. Because if you look at it, then you are all the time apologetic. You see, then we just get derailed. So the important thing is to stand by the tradition, investigate the tradition, and have faith in the tradition. Faith not in the in the blind sense. Faith not in even the Christian uh, uh, sense, you know, the, there is a Christian definition of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. This is the Christian definition of faith given by Dante Alighieri in his Divine Comedy. And it is derived from, I think from 
something which John said in his uh, gospel. So evidence of things unseen. In India, there is no faith which is in anything which is unseen. You see, there is faith in things which you have experienced. Anubhuti, Swanabhuti. I only stand by something which I have known myself, not which has been told to me by whomsoever. The final praman or the final evidence is my experience. That is my faith. It is not evidence of thing unseen. It's not substance of thing hoped for. And evidence of thing which I will one day experience. No, it is Swanabhuti. Swanabhuti is the only standard. I think Bhaktri Hari has, uh, has a verse on this. This is about Shiva. Swanabhutim ekamanaya namaha shantaya tejase. I bow to that Shiva who is shanta and brilliant or teja and Swanabhuti mekamanaya. Swanabhuti is the only manam, is the only way of defining. He is the one who gives the experience and he is the final. So Swanabhuti in the Indian tradition and that makes it distinct from Christianity, Islam and Judaism. It's a Hindu faith or as a matter of fact, I think all pagan faiths, so-called pagan faiths, <laughs> they are based on experience. Experience which happens to you in front of your own eyes. So all these texts, as a matter of fact, from Shruti, Veda, Rig Veda onwards, are to bring us to an experience. And hence, <clears throat> What is required is a shraddha in them. The real word, the equivalent of faith in common language would be shraddha. Shraddha in the sense that it is something which gives me a reward. Shraddhavan labhate jnanam. When Krishna says in uh, Gita, that Shraddha Vanulavate Gyanam, it is one who has Shraddha, he investigates and he discovers, he experiences. So these texts are to be known, experienced, studied, and there is a whole process of learning. Now, <clears throat> in the tradition, this is also known by Vedamat. Vedamat does not mean 
just what is written in the Samhitas. Modern Indology, or if you go to a, a, <coughs> a Vedicist, you know, now in, in departments of Indology, people are known as Vedicists. He is, Witzel is a Vedicist, George Thompson is a Vedicist. Now, for Vedicists, the only Veda is the Samhita. What is written in the Samhita or the text of Veda? That is, thank you. That is the Veda. But in India, what is most important is not just the Samhita or the collection of mantras, but the whole tradition of Veda. How it has lived, continued, generated one philosophic system after another and how it is related to a whole civilizational experience. That is Vedamata. So somebody belongs to that Vedamata and you can belong to the Vedamata as Astic or Nastic. See, when people say that Bauddhas are Nastic, well, Nastic they are in the sense that the Samhita or is not the authority of Pramana for them. But then they belong to the same tradition. Later on, when I go into Manusmriti and others, then I'll take up this question. So they belong to Vedamat. And Vedamat is that line of text. It's the line of text which keeps the whole civilization of India alive. In which there is diversity, in which there is room for any philosophical uh, position possible and philosophers can come up with one philosophical position after another and they have been doing it and all of them are allowed and all of them are discussed and examined. Some are able to have a field today Others simply disappear or are not known. Like the Pashupatas, for instance. There are no living tradition of Pashupatas today. But then they were. So there are so many other, so many darshanas which were living tradition once upon a time. Or certain sampradayas which were part of the living tradition which have disappeared or merged into some other tradition. But it is a continuum. Now, when you understand this, then you know where you stand and where you belong. See, that's the most important thing. Because we cannot be defined by what has been told to us about our identity from, let's say, mid-19th century onwards by Western Indology. Western Indology has their own way of thing and uh, uh, it is their uh, cup of tea. It is for themselves that they made it. They didn't make it for us. That's how they wanted to define us. So they did a good job for themselves. There's no point in endlessly blaming them. We have to move on and to recognize and understand our own tradition. Now there are three texts that I am going to take up today. 
which are the part of this tradition and which define social life. How life is to be lived. You see, in the 19th century, the main confrontation was with the British and other uh, Indological writing. The main confrontation was how to define India as different from the West. So we made an image of India primarily as a spiritual land, elevating the Vedic values or elevating the spiritual element and elevating the uh, Vedanta and keeping it highest and said, this is our core and everything comes around it. This was unfortunately a reaction. You see, because this was a reaction to the monotheistic tradition which was introduced to us earlier by Islam and very uh, very specifically by Christianity. Islam brought in monotheism without much dialogue. You know, there, is, <laughs> there has been no dialogue in philosophical terms or social terms with, with Islam. Although Islam came here in, in, in a little bit uh, in the 9th century with Muhammad bin Qasim but then with full force and vigor and uh, political domination in the uh, 11th century here, 12th century the Delhi Sultanate but still there was no philosophical exchange or understanding or evaluation. I mean, there is no text uh, which defines Islam. In the later text, Sarva Dharma Sangraha, Islam is not described as a philosophical system. Dayanand Saraswati is the first person in writing in 19th century in Satyata Prakash, where when he takes up all philosophical systems, the Bhaktas, the Jainas and Vaishnavas, then he takes Islam and Christianity also. But there was no Purva Paksha of Islam and no text writing about it in a proper detail. So in the 19th century we get so intimidated with monotheism <coughs> that we posit Brahmavad, we posit Vedanta as the real, the major, the dominant, the Vedantic system. Now that also is not a true picture of the tradition. The tradition, please join me. Welcome. The tradition puts forth four things as the purpose of human life. 
I mean, why do human beings act and live and what do, should they achieve? And there, the idea of dharma, artha, kam and moksha, these are the four force, uh, four reasons for living. Why do you live? What are you going to do? How are you going to survive? By following these four purusharthas. That is, a purush, purush here means man as well as woman. Don't get into a modern genderist uh, <laughs> unnecessary argument here. You know. So, uh, it means these are the four reasons dharma, artha, kama. Earlier they, they were enumerated as three and then moksha was added. Earlier it was believed that dharma includes moksha because that is the final assessment of dharma. The final paripak or pariniti of dharma is moksha. Whatever way one would define moksha, bauddhas would define it one way, jainas would define it another way, etc. So dharmartha kamu moksha will not elevate just the spiritual reality of life. They will talk about four, three things in which you have to have a balance. Balance between dharma, balance between ka, ka, artha, and balance between karma. So life consists of all three. So it does not consist of just pursuing the divine. But unfortunately, now, in 20th and 21st century, every Hindu has been taught, Bhajiya Rama Sab Kama Bihai. <laughs> Tulsidas said it in a certain context. Deha dharekar yaha palapai bhajiye ram sab kaam bihai. Bhajiye ram, ram ko bhajiye sab kaam chhodkar. Ram ko hi bhajiye yehi deha dharne ka ek phal hai. Now this is a medieval, non-classical, approach, you see. As a matter of fact, the medieval approach has also been as harmful to us as the 19th century colonial approach. This is my view. I say it very clearly. I get a, a lot of flack for it also from various uh, sections of spiritualists and swamis and others. But then this is what the texts are talking about. You see, pramartho aapke saamne hai na? The line of these texts. Nothing vacuous. Nothing imaginary. There is no ancient text which says something in Sanskrit or in upper branch or an earlier Indian language parallel to deha dhare kariyeha phalapai. There is no such text. The 
whole medieval period of India, right from, let us say, Kabir and onwards, it has this turning away from the world. So the purpose of life is made some kind of a moksha, whether that moksha is nirguna moksha or saguna moksha, but it turns out to be the single purpose of life is liberation. Now that was not the ideal of Indian civilization ever. The classical ideal and which needs to be very clearly re-emphasized is that there is a balance between dharma, artha, kama and moksha which is in any case part of dharma. Now if you look at it this way then we have three cardinal texts which talk about this. The dharma shastras for what is the dharmic way of life or what is going to be your daily pursuit and activity and your daily practice, achana. See, for that we have the dharma shastras and manu is the foremost of the dharma shastras. Then we have for artha kautilyas Arthashastra and for Kama we have Vatsya and Kama Sutra. Kama Sutra is also a Shastra but it is called Kama Sutra because it is not written in couplets or karikas but it is written in prose, short small prose passages called the Sutras and therefore it is called Kama Sutra. But the purpose, purpose is entirely the same. Okay. So with these three texts, we should try and get an, an understanding of what the classical ideals of the balance between Dharma, Arth and Kama <laughs> And we shall take them now, one by one. So we'll begin first of all with Manusmith. Yeah, please. Quickly, I just want to uh, talk about the format. Would you mind if people ask questions? Raise hand, ask questions, and you decide when you want to answer or you want to take it up. No, no, I, I was about to announce okay. that. You know, the way I go about these, uh, these talks is that I, <clears throat> introduce the subject and then I get into uh, something so specific as Manusmriti which I will do now and then I will I will uh, invite questions and uh, so that you can ask me questions and we discuss what I have said uh, some questions I'll answer straight away some you know as part of the discussion so this is an entirely interactive session, and uh, I should have announced that earlier, but that's what's going to be. 
So let me make a small introduction about Manusmriti and so that you have something specific to ask about. I so far gave you a general historical introduction, you know, how we need to approach uh, the texts of India and how they are very important in order to even think about modernity in a different fashion. Because you have to assess the reality of civilization in terms of texts, in terms of the textual tradition, which I consider to be the, the real tradition with which you can talk about, you see. It's, it's very different from uh, a certain phase modern Hinduism has gone into. This is the phase of having a guru and following what the guru says. You see, for the last 50 years or maybe even 100 years, all Hinduism is rushing towards Guruvad. So there are famous gurus. No need for me to take the names. You all know the names. This has been so from 1950 onwards. Uh, Mahesh Yogi onwards. This. So you latch on to a guru. And then whatever the guru talks about, whatever text the guru may refer or the life of the guru, and that's how you work out a spiritual way. That's not the Indian tradition at all. See, that's not how India has survived these 5,000 years of, or maybe more. It has survived on analysis. It has survived on investigation. It has survived on comparison of what is good and what is bad. And what is good for social life, spiritual life, cultural life. And how does these values make up your civilization? So we had a very, very well thought out system of living. You see, when, when something like very vague, I read for the first time, Radha Krishna's Hinduism is a way of life. Of course, I was very young, second year in college, <laughs> 1965. So I felt uncomfortable. Now today I can outright junk this and tell you why it should be done. But at that time, it was just a matter of discomfort for me. Because, fortunately, I have been raised on text. You see, mine is not a case of an Anglophone who first went to college, became a Marxist, and then turned to Hinduism. As has been the case with a large number of people. Some very famous people like Sitaram Goelji. No, mine is a case of somebody who comes from a traditional Baniya family, educated family, in which my father read the Bhagavad Gita in Sanskrit. So by the age of seven, I had half of the Bhagavad Gita by heart, in which he read Tulsidas, and Tulsidas 
and part of Tulsidas was a puja also. If you wanted to do some small little parayan or something, then you read Tulsi. You did a whole. So, Tulsidas is something which I have known from childhood. So, I am with the text. And my uncle was somebody who knew a bit of Persian or knew a lot of Urdu poetry. So, by the age of 10, I was familiar with a huge number of Urdu poets, etc. Again, the text. And then, classical North Indian music, which was part of our home. So, I had that pure first-hand understanding of what is a particular way of worship and what is music as part of an achievement. And then of course I went to an anglophonic school and I read Shakespeare and all that. But I am a person who right from early childhood has had a textual training. And I have found that all other kinds of training are misleading. They are totally misleading. And all great philosophers in this country have not just gone to a guru, but they have found, they have looked for a guru because they wanted to understand a particular text. Why do you go to a guru for? Because he is going to teach you a text. He is the specialist of that tradition. So the great stalwarts, the great philosophers, they have always pursued a particular textual philosophic tradition and then gone to a teacher. This whole business that I meet my guru somewhere in the forest, somewhere in an urban center and I am stunned and I have a great experience and I become a disciple. This is all late medieval period activity. This is not the classical tradition of India. The classical tradition of India is absolutely rational. It is based on anvikshiki, analysis. It is based on inquiry. It is based upon a mental exertion. Yes. The Swanubhuti or the experience comes when you go beyond that. But that is a matter of training. And for this you need first a textual understanding before you can go beyond the textual understanding. Coming to Manusmriti now. Yes. Wasn't language the barrier for it actually? Wasn't language the barrier? Sanskrit is something that many of us do not know. You mean it was or it is or what? It probably changed at some point. Or you mean right. through civilization yeah, it, it has changed some point of time. Today we don't know much, not many of us know Sanskrit. Okay, right. now look, let me tell you about this whole. This whole business of talking about Sanskrit as a language of few people and then of course saying, no, no, it was not few. This is all unhistorically true. There is a great wonder 
which happened in India. And that is why Indian civilization survived. The wonder was that all the philosophic notions in the Vedas, in the Shastras, in the Dharma Shastras, various Shastras, were taught to people at large. To women and shudras as well, to put it in classical language. <laughs> By the agency of natya or theatre or performing arts. And this is very early. It's as early as the Vedic Yajna itself. All the ideas they were transmitted to the most common people. If you go into the villages of India and talk to not the very young, but let's say middle age or old age people, they still use some very specific definitional terms of Indian philosophy very comfortably, like Atma. You see? They have a very clear understanding of what is Atma. They don't use it vaguely. An old woman who perhaps is illiterate, how is she able to do it? Because she has heard the Ramayana, Mahabharata, the story, she has watched the plays, she has seen Leela. The message has been there. They use terms like Rasa. You know, rasa is such a complicated, sophisticated terms that our great Harvard professors have not been able to understand it. Sorry for being so blunt, but Sundar and I, we keep talking about that problem and, you know, as to how people misunderstand. But the village women and the lowest caste women, they know what is rasa. They use the word rasa very comfortably, very accurately. How did this happen? Is it an accident? No, it's not an accident. It's part of a cultural system of education. And this education came to us. So, don't get carried away by this colonial argument that the language of philosophy was Sanskrit and the language of philosophy was restricted to a few and the others were just subjected to it? No. All the essential doctrines were immediately transmitted through various channels. Various performing channels because Natya is not just drama. Katha is also drama. Leela is also drama. Ritual, what is we call sanskar, ritual, Leela, Khel, all this is performing. Or telling stories through pictures, Bhopas of, of Rajasthan. All this is transmitting the essential philosophical terms. And the people believed it. 
and the people lived by it. So Sanskrit had a very close connection with all other languages and performing arts. Then why did people started looking towards gurus? That was my question actually. But the gurus were not teaching through Sanskrit. Okay. You see, there were all kinds of gurus. Okay. Gurus who would teach you texts. Those gurus will teach you in the language of the text. If it was Pali, then through Pali. If it was Ardhamagadhi, through that. If it was Samabhransha, then through that. And in medieval times, they would teach you through whatever the medieval languages. Kavitta, in, like Kabir will teach his... After all, why did Kabir write these? Uh, compositions in order to teach to his to his, to his uh, sampradaya, to his students, to his followers. So people went to gurus, all kinds of gurus. This is a very limited approach of what was the method of teaching and the cultural method of teaching in India. Just look at every method, every teacher was not a pandit of an agraha, and every student was not somebody who went there through Upanayan. That's part of the reality. But we talk about it, we discuss it, we have politics over it. But look at the big picture. How education was done and how. You know. Yes, so coming back to the... Huh? Yeah, coming back to Manusmriti.